It's uh, a pleasure to be preaching once again as uh, Rick and Tammy take a uh, well-deserved break. Um, I think all of us who know Rick and Tammy know that having a couple weeks off is, is going to do them good. Well, the sermon this morning will be slightly, just slightly different than usual. Um, as you know, the custom here at Tri-State Community Church is what you call expository preaching. And that would be preaching that seeks to understand and explain a, a particular text or a portion of Scripture. So, for instance, when Rick and Tammy return from their vacation, uh, we'll begin a study on the book of Romans. And beginning with verse 1, in chapter 1, Rick will lead us through the entire book. And the study will likely require a large amount of time, but this style of preaching is ideal because it forces us to examine Scripture in its original context. And as you know, the three keys to biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. So this is why expository preaching is really the, the regular diet of our church here at Tri-State Community. Now, that said, sometimes it is good to approach sermons from a topic. And this approach, this topical approach, takes place when we pick a specific topic and we examine it and everything the Bible says about it. So the series we just concluded on covenants is an example of this type of study. And you'll remember during that study that Rick examined the topic of covenant. He examined that theme of the offspring. And then we looked at a number of passages in the Old and New Testament and tried to see how things connect together. And, and doing studies this way can help us understand some of those big ideas in the Bible. And if you come to Wednesday night, you know this is what we do at our study with the Catechism, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you've attended this study, you know that the Catechism asks us a question. So, for instance, question one, what is the chief end of man? Does anybody remember the answer? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So it asks a question, and it provides us with an answer, and then we're flipping all over the Bible to see how we got that answer, uh, to find out what the Bible says about a particular topic. Now, that is just a really long way of saying we're not going to do an expository message this morning. That's a long way of me saying we're going to be doing a topical message. And we're going to be opening the Bible. So don't think for a second that we're not going to be flipping through Scripture. As a matter of fact, we're going to do a lot of flipping through Scripture this morning. But we're going to be looking at Scripture in an effort to answer this question. Why are we here? Why have we collectively decided to set aside a couple hours each Sunday to be together? Why are we here in this place doing all these things that we do each Sunday morning? And take a second just to think to yourself, how would you answer that question? If somebody approached you, why do you go to church on a Sunday morning? And I've been asking this question to myself over the past few months, and I think it's because when you have kids, you know that inevitably they're going to ask you, why are we going to church? And so I guess in my mind, I want to have a response that's prepared to answer that question and not just say, because you have to, even though I will say, because you have to. Um, there needs to be more to it. Now, thankfully, that moment hasn't yet come with my kids, but, but I anticipate it especially later this year when Christmas falls on a Sunday. Why are we here in this place 
doing these things we do. So in 2014, the Barna Research Group conducted a study on the importance of church in America. And they asked this question. They said, what, if anything, helps Americans grow in their faith? That would be the question they would ask you. Now, people offered a variety of responses. They said prayer, family, friends, reading the Bible, even having children was the response. But church did not even crack the top ten list. Although church involvement was once a cornerstone of American life, U.S. adults today are evenly divided on the importance of attending church. So while half, 49%, say it's somewhat or very important, the other half, 51%, say it's not that important or not at all important. And so the study continues. They say, while tens of millions of Americans attend church each weekend, the practice has declined in recent years. So overall church attendance has dipped from 43% in 2004 to 36% today. So 43% in 2004 to 36% today. But beyond the dip in overall numbers, the nature of church going is changing. And this is really interesting. Regular attenders used to be people who went to church three or more weekends each month or several times a week when you add the weekly services. Now, people who show up once every four to six weeks consider themselves regular churchgoers. Why are we here in this place doing these things? I mean, why is this significant? Is it just tradition? Do we even really need to gather together like this? I mean, didn't Jesus say where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them? Well, if that's the case, why do we do this? Why are we here? So that's our task this morning. My goal, goal, is to provide a biblical response to the question, why do we gather together? And my hope is that by answering this question, We'll have a renewed appreciation for the church, for our weekly gatherings, and maybe some answers for some of these commonly asked questions. And I need to state at the beginning how indebted I am to the work of Pastor Kevin DeYoung uh, on this issue. He's helped me a lot in preparing a sermon. A lot of what I'm using comes from him. So why do we gather together? Okay, we're going to look at a series of reasons. First, because God commands it. Turn with me to Leviticus 23, and we're going to do some flipping this morning, because I think there's value in us looking at Scripture together. So Leviticus 23, third book in the Bible, that'll put us on page 101 if you're using the church's Bible. So after God delivered Israel from Egypt, you'll recall that he provided them with the law. And the law was given through Moses, and it identified Israel as God's people. Why? Because it distinguished them from other nations. And one aspect of the law included a series of feasts and festivals Israel was required to observe regularly. Look at Leviticus 23, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. 
And if you look at the headings in the chapter, if you just look down, you'll see the various feasts God's going to command Israel to observe. You have the Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. Now here's the point. Three of these feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Booths, required Israel to gather together collectively at the tabernacle before the Lord. So we see here in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, God commanding the people of Israel, gather together to worship, gather together at these appointed times. But you may be thinking, that's the Old Testament, Donald. We know that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. We don't even observe these feasts anymore. Excellent point. Thank you for bringing it up. Turn with me to our memory verse this week, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, go right near the back of the book. Page 1006, 1006. So here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, we read, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Maybe those regular church attenders that come once every four or six weeks. Maybe that's what that's referring to. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So yes, it is true we're no longer obligated to observe the Old Testament calendar of feasts because Christ has fulfilled those parts of the law, those pointed to Christ. He's the fulfillment of them. However, here in Hebrews, New Testament, a book very much aware of the Old Testament law, we have an explicit command to meet together. A command that literally means, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves. So first and foremost, we gather because God commands it. Second, we gather because it's the pattern of Scripture. So in addition to these passages referenced in the first point, Scripture provides a lot of evidence that God's people gather together to worship. Read the Psalms. You'll see all these calls to gather together and worship. From the foot of Mount Sinai after Exodus, God brings his people to the foot of the mountain, to the tabernacle in the wilderness, to the temple in Jerusalem, to the synagogue, to the private dwellings in Acts. God's people gather together to worship him. So turn with me to Acts 2. Acts 2.42, we're going to look at an example of this. That'll page 911. So in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit has descended as promised in fulfillment of prophecy. Peter then gets up and he preaches a sermon to those who are in attendance. And we're told in verse 41 that about 3,000 people were converted that day. Then in Acts 2.42, we read the following. They, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, you don't have to turn with me, but in 1 Corinthians 11.18, we read of instructions for, quote, when you come together as a church. Corinthians says, quote, when you come together as a church, well, that indicates that there's a unique gathering of the church. 
That was not the same as a few Christians hanging out at Tim Hortons talking about Jesus. Okay? There's something more to it. And then later in 1 Corinthians 16, we read the instructions for setting aside a collection, quote, on the first day of the week. Set aside a collection, quote, on the first day of the week, suggesting that the Corinthian church met for services of worship every Sunday. And in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells his disciple Timothy, he says, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You see, we gather, not just because God has commanded it, but it's the pattern we see of God's people throughout the Scripture. It's what God's people have always done. They gather together. Third, we gather because we need each other. The Christian faith is not individualistic, even though that's what a lot of Americans have really come to embrace and believe. Consider the metaphors Scripture uses to describe the church in the New Testament. You're going to find that each of these represent the church collectively. Turn to Acts 20. First, we're going to see that we're called the flock of Christ. Acts 20, 28. Page 930. Here, Paul is addressing the elders in the church of Ephesus, and he writes, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And this is echoed in 1 Peter. So if we go to 1 Peter 5, promise we'd be looking at a lot of scripture, didn't I? 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, page 1016. 1016. So starting in verse 1 in chapter 5, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So we see Scripture refers to the church as a flock. Scripture also will refer to the church as a bride. And if we look at Ephesians 5, turning left in our Bibles, on page 978, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Scripture tells us we're being built into a holy temple. So we got a flock, a bride, a holy temple. Ephesians 2.19, just turn back one page. 977, Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple 
in the Lord. And perhaps the greatest metaphor, the last metaphor we'll look at, is the language of the body, us being the body of Christ. And you don't have to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one, but has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what's the point? These metaphors, flock, temple, bride, body, and there's others, they remind us that as Christians, our lives are intertwined and they inform one another. We're not meant to be alone. So when believers abstain from church, we're depriving ourselves of the benefits of the body. Because it's in these gatherings the person with the gift of hospitality can encourage. The individual with that gift of teaching is able to exhort and teach. The sister with the gift of mercy can dispense comfort. And the brother with the gift of faith can set an example. You see, when we gather, we shape one another to the glory of God. And because of this, there's no Lone Ranger Christianity. There's not even Lone Ranger plus Tonto Christianity. Every Christian, every Christian must participate in the communion of the saints. A Christian without the church is like a fish without water. It's not where they're supposed to live. So, we gather together, God commands it. We gather together, we see that's what God's people have done throughout Scripture. And we gather together because we frankly need one another. And finally, we gather together to worship the God who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. When we gather together, we're not coming together just to sing a few songs like we did this morning and then passively listen to a sermon, which you may be doing now. (laughs) Our gathering for worship is an exercise in covenant renewal. Rick's been preaching about the covenants. We gather together to hear the covenant proclaimed again. And then we respond afresh to the gospel in faith to be reminded of sins forgiven. It's a weekly celebration of the resurrection. By setting aside a day each week to worship, we participate in the glorious reality that we have already entered God's rest through Christ Jesus. A rest that will one day be realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's a foretaste of that heavenly banquet to come that we read about in Revelation. When we gather together, it's more than just people getting together to sing songs and listen to a sermon. It's a foretaste of what's to come. You see, in worship, we're not only meeting with the body of Christ. So we're not just meeting with one another. We're meeting with God himself. Or more accurately... He's meeting with us. When the church gathers together, she is communing with the living, holy, sovereign God of the universe by His his word and spirit. And consider this just for a moment. This God who meets with us each and every Lord's Day, what we call Sunday, this is the same God that met Isaiah, and Isaiah was undone. Turn to Isaiah 6. 
see, page 570. Isaiah 6, or page 571, excuse me. Verse 1, we read, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This same God we meet with each Lord's Day, each Sunday, is the same God the disciple John saw. The same disciple who saw Christ ascend into heaven. When he sees him again in Revelation 1, what happens? He falls down as though dead. Turn to Revelation 1. Last book of the Bible. Page 1028. 1028. Chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 10. So this is John writing. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." And finally, this same God we meet with each Sunday is the same God that Paul, who was then named Saul, the man who was determined to destroy the church, encountered on the road to Damascus. And he was radically changed into one of the pillars of the Christian faith. Now, I offer these stories as a reminder of the God we serve. We serve the God who spoke everything into existence from nothing. And this same God, this is what's crazy, He condescends to meet us here. He summons us to worship each Lord day through His Word. When we do the call to worship, that's God summoning His people to worship. That's not just Tim or Rick reading a scripture. That is God speaking through His Word, calling His people to worship. He hears our prayers. He forgives our sins. He speaks to us through the preaching of His Word. 
So many people today are desperate to hear from God. Come hear his word proclaimed on a Sunday. He receives the praises of his people when we sing. He provides us with these visible means of grace when we observe the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then he blesses his people in the benediction. On this day, we enter into the very heavenly worship that never ceases. Now, in light of this, if this is true, why would we ever decide to remove ourselves or our families from corporate worship? Even if it is Christmas. Dr. Michael Horton gets to the heart of this matter. He writes something. He says, What are we indicating about where our ultimate treasure lies when we give ourselves to sports, shopping, and entertainment on this day? Has nothing changed with Christ's resurrection from the dead? Is there no new creation and new family to which we belong? Is there no place on earth today, no time in our weekly routine in which the Spirit is at work uniting sinners to Christ, justifying and renewing them by His Word? You see, we go to church to receive grace precisely so we can be the church in the world. Church is gathering for God's people. But what about those who might argue this? Well, Donald, that's really nice, all you got to say about church on Sunday, but, you know, Christianity is really about a relationship. It's about a relationship we all have with God through Jesus Christ. It's not about religion. And that's a popular thing to hear today. And the objection sounds reasonable, right? Um, Why bother with all this church stuff if, if it's our hearts that really matter? After all, I mean, God wants a relationship with you and I. Not some man-made religion. We can agree on that. But before we accept this argument, we need to know what we're talking about. If, If when we say religion, if we say religion and we mean legalism, which is the idea that we can appease God through ritual and through good works, so somehow by doing these things we make God happy, well, yes, Christ abolishes that kind of religion. However, if by religion we mean a set of beliefs, usually from a sacred book, with prescribed rituals and observances and specific commands to obey, if the shoe fits, Christianity is a religion. We are, after all, putting faith in something besides faith. And such objects of faith have to be defined. And as for ritual, what about the Lord's Supper? What about baptism? Or praying that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? As Christians, we have a sacred book called the Bible. We have sacred teaching, whether it be the Trinity, justification by faith alone. Sacred teaching is there. We have sacred ordinances in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we have sacred offices through elders and deacons. Like it or not, Christianity is an organized religion. And it's the church that provides that organization. It provides that shape and definition. And perhaps this is why many people don't like the church. Sure, let's be fair. The church can be old, it can be stale, and it can be downright sinful and hurtful at times. 
It can. We have to acknowledge that. But I think sometimes the reason people don't like churches, it has walls. And I don't mean the four walls built around us. See, the church, it defines what truth is, doesn't it? It shows us the way to live. It tells us the news we must believe if we're to be saved. It means something. It stands for something and it refuses to be anything we want it to be. Now, very important, who's the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. So this is not something that we are doing. This is something Christ himself is doing. Christ is building his church. But as the head of his church, he is using the church to accomplish those ends. So, are we required to go to church? Yes. If we want to be biblical, if we want to be wise, if we want to grow up in the faith, if we want to be realistic about how our faith is nurtured and sustained over the long haul, we all need Christ. We all need Christ's word. We all need his spirit. And not least of all, we need his bride, his body. We need each other. You can't have a foundation if you don't have a house. You can't have a head if you don't have a body. You can't have a groom if you don't have a bride. The New Testament knows nothing of this unchurched Christianity. There's no Christianity without Christ, and there's no Christ without His church. We need both the individuals and the institution of the church. We need the church as an organism and an organization. We need to be the church. Absolutely. Yes. We also need to go to church. Christ loves his bride and so must we. Not in theory or from a distance, but in person, in flesh, every week for our good and God's glory. Dr. Edmund Clowney writes something. This is a quote we're going to conclude with. He says, Above all, we must prize the blessing of corporate worship. See what he calls it? The blessing of corporate worship. The church of the Lord gathered for worship marks the pinnacle of our fellowship with the Lord and with each other. The church is the people of God, the new humanity, the beginning of the new creation, a colony of heaven. That's so cool. I love that. A colony of heaven. Think of sending a colony to Mars. It's a colony of heaven here on earth. In corporate worship, we experience the meaning of union with Christ. Now, I think one of the things we need to address is that there are times when we can't come to church. And this is not a means to let people who can't come feel worse about their current condition. This is about people who willfully choose not to come when they can. Um, so why are we here? In this place, doing these things. Well, we gather together because God commands it. We gather together because it's the pattern we see God's people doing throughout Scripture. Because we need one another. And last, but certainly not least, to worship the God who's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to You now, and Lord, we're, we're so grateful that You have called us to this place to do these things at this time. 
Lord, when we recognize the importance of your church that gathers corporately, Father, we ask that as uh, we continue in this service, as we sing our final song, that you would impress these things to our hearts, that, Father, you would uh, have us hear what we need to hear, and that, Father, you would change us and conform us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.